Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Budgeting is such an important life skill, but how many of us are actually good at it? Do you think investing is out of reach because you have too much debt to pay off? Don't worry, there's hope. Coming up, we'll learn more about the new NPR podcast series, Life Kit. The episodes on personal finance are hosted by NPR correspondent Chris Arnold. He'll join us later with all kinds of tips. Now, we're dipping back into personal finance because it's tax season. And as we learned last week on Where We Live, when we spoke with financial advisor Maggie Jondro, our tax situation this year, including that expected refund, could be vastly different than in years past, thanks to the new federal tax law that went into effect in 2018. Now, how we think about money, including tax refunds, have deep psychological roots. For more on this, joining us by uh, the studio in Marketplace in New York City is Marielle Seguera. She's a reporter for Marketplace. She's been reporting on uh, refunds and the tax season, how we think about our money. Marielle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You can also join the conversation this hour, 860-275-7266. And Marielle, in your reporting, uh, you talked about around uh, tax season, uh, Americans may be hearing ads from tax preparation companies. Here's a little clip. Have you all filed your taxes? Oh, yeah. We did good. For real good. Bigger refund than last year. How much we talking? Four? Ooh. Five? Ooh. Seven? Ooh. That's more than we got, babe. Uh, again, that's a clip from uh, one of your stories. That's an ad from a Georgia tax preparation company. Uh, tell us, so uh, you played this ad for finance experts. Uh, what did they think when uh, they heard the premise of that ad, Marielle? Yeah, I actually, um, I played it for a CPA named Justin McAuliffe in in on Long Island, New York. Um, and he was, this really bothered him because basically a tax refund is an interest-free loan that you're giving to the government. Um, it is your own money that you're getting back. Uh, and so he's always trying to get his clients to change their withholding so that they, at the end of the year, don't get a refund, that they get their money all year instead. Uh, and so hearing that tax preparation companies try to play this up, like they can get you the biggest refund, really bothered him. Now, in your reporting, uh, because of uh, the new uh, federal uh, tax uh, law that went into effect in 2018, what's it looking like so far for this tax season? You know, how many people are actually still going to be getting refunds? Yeah, so we have data going up until February 22nd. The data comes out every week, so it is changing a little every week. We know so far that total the total number of refunds um, are down. So 2 million fewer people are getting refunds so far this season as opposed to last season. Um, also, the amount of refunds is down in total. The average refund is actually up by about 1%. And uh, remind us again, so uh, throughout the last year, uh, with the change in tax code, uh, the formula for withholding change, so all of us may be getting a little bit extra uh, in our our uh, paychecks, but if you did change your withholding, that's where the problem uh, uh, may uh, come into effect when you file taxes and realize, oh, I'm not going to get as much as I'm expecting from years past. 
Yeah, exactly. So we know that in the U.S. we pay our taxes as we go. Your employer withholds taxes from your paycheck, sends it to the government on your behalf. Um, But the amount that's withheld depends on two things, on choices that you make on that W-4 form you fill out every time you start a new job, for instance, and also on guidelines that the government gives your company. Um, And so after Congress overhauled the tax code in 2017, the IRS sent new guidelines to companies and said, take out less money from people's paychecks because most people are actually getting a tax cut. Um, The problem is that withholding is not an exact science. And Congress also got rid of a lot of the deductions people take at tax time uh, that can lower their tax bill or get them more of a refund. So now people who didn't change their withholding may have had too much Um, or not enough, that is, taken out of their paycheck, not enough to cover their tax bill, and now they'll end up owing money. So uh, when we go back to that, uh, the ad that we heard from a tax preparation company, again, uh, people really have this sense of satisfaction when they file their taxes and they're getting a big refund, even though that's technically their money. As you said, it's an interest-free loan uh, to the government throughout the year, depending on what your withholding is. So uh, tell us a little bit more about what you found in your reporting on the idea of, of the refund and why it's so satisfying. Yeah. I mean, look, I think a lot of people do get a refund just because they're afraid that they're going to end up owing money at the end of the year. So they want to play it safe. Some people just don't think about it. But I think a big chunk of people, they just they like getting a refund. Um, For one thing, psychologically, we prefer to get money in one big chunk, it seems, to getting it in in small amounts all year long, maybe let's say $20 more a paycheck. Um, It's like it feels like uh like a surprise or like a gift. Uh, a couple of people described it to me that way. Like It's like Christmas or it's like a birthday gift. Um, we get a little boost when we get that money, even if it is our own money. Um, and some people also use the refund as a way to set aside money so they can't touch it all year long, like another savings account, but one that they can't access, even though that means foregoing interest on that money. That's interesting. So the idea that, you know, uh, on our own, we might have trouble uh, putting aside the extra 20 bucks because, you know, the the Starbucks mocha is more tempting. Uh, But this way, when you think about getting that lump sum uh, once you file your taxes, uh, that's a way to then go, oh, maybe I have I have money to afford uh, something I've been trying to save for. Um, So let's talk a little bit about just the history of getting that government refund. Can you walk us through when it really started, Mario? Sure. Yeah. So back in the early 1940s, that's when Congress expanded the income tax. Before then, mostly the wealthy paid it. Um, And then World War II happened. Congress expanded it so that a lot of people had to pay it. And very quickly, they started also withholding, having employers withhold taxes from people's paychecks to make sure that they would actually get that money. Um, And then, yeah, Pretty quickly, by the late 1940s, um, the withholding, the science or, yeah, it's not an exact science, basically. (laughs) So um, the government basically started giving refunds to the level of like $2 billion a year back to people by the late 1940s. Um, And then quickly after that, companies started advertising around the refund. So you'd hear um, furniture stores or car dealerships, stuff like that, big purchases. They'd say, you know, come spend your refund here. Uh, and, And you still see those ads now. 
Uh, uh, with us from the studio for Marketplace in New York City is Marielle Seguera. She's been looking into the psychology of saving, especially around tax season, when in the past a lot of people, again, anticipate and look forward uh, to getting a big refund. But there's also consequences when we think about this, uh, Marielle, uh, given the fact that people didn't change or withholding, uh, putting uh, all their eggs in one basket, so to speak, because when they're not going to get that refund, uh, what what does that mean in terms of, of having that financial stability just for a couple of months to have a little bit of extra cash. Yeah, I think um, what we're really talking about is why is it better to have $1 today rather than $1 a year from now, right? You could put that money in a savings account and earn interest. You could invest it in the stock market and potentially earn a lot more. Uh, If you have debt that you are paying interest on, you could pay that off sooner. Um, You could pay for things like Healthcare costs, like we, there's a study by J.P. Morgan Chase from last year that people actually spend a lot of their tax refund, it seems, on healthcare and even delay their healthcare spending until tax season. Um, and so those are all the things you could be doing with with the refund that you're getting later on. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk more about how all of us can become better savers, even if you think you're living on a tight budget and you don't have a lot of wiggle room. Uh, NPR correspondent Chris Arnold will be joining us in just a little bit. Uh, but Marielle, uh, I wanted to go back to some of the people that you've reported on uh, who look at that tax refund and think of it as you know free money or a birthday present. You profiled a couple, the Davies uh, from Virginia. Tell us a little bit about them and uh, what has been the consequence this year for them. Yeah. So they usually get back a few thousand dollars every year. Um, They set their withholding that way. And they use it for things like, um, you know, one year they bought tickets to an amusement park. Um, They've also used it for purchases for things that they actually need. Um, And this year they were planning to fix their central air because it it broke last summer. Um, But they ended up not getting a refund. In fact, they owe money. Um, So they're going to have to borrow money probably to do that. And in your reporting for Marketplace, uh, because people are hearing about the consequence of not um, changing their withholding throughout 2018, um, anecdotally, or what are you hearing? Is there evidence that people are waiting till the last minute to file? I'm not sure if people are waiting until the last minute. I Actually, I've been hearing from a lot of people that they have filed already. A few people, there have been delays, Um in, in getting their refunds back. Um, but but yeah, I think a lot of people have filed and, and have been sort of surprised at what they've seen. Some people uh, said to me, you know, they were shocked that they owe money. And so they're going to go to an accountant and see if they can fix it for them, if there's something they're not thinking about. People who normally didn't go to an accountant. Uh, earlier, we talked about uh, how many people um, are actually getting refunds. Does the IRS, are they going to disclose how many people actually owe this year? No, it's that's not included in its data releases every week. What they show is um, the total number of refunds, the average refund amount, um, and the total uh, amount of refunds as well. Marielle Seguera, again, is a reporter for Marketplace. We're going to tweet out links to her stories uh, at Where We Live. Marielle, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Okay, so what are some ways to be smarter about money that doesn't mean we only rely on a tax refund to have some extra cash? NPR uh, correspondent Chris Arnold has a podcast with some help for all of us. It's called Life Kit. He's going to join us after the break. And you can, too, with your questions or comments, 860-275-7266. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Did you learn about personal finance in school or maybe from your parents? Maybe you're still learning how to budget and grow your savings. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, as we dive into personal finance. Uh, NPR has a series of podcasts called Life Kit, and some of them have focused in on money and personal finance. And as my next guest and his producers describe it, Life Kit podcasts are actually tools for living, rooted in real research, behavioral science, and more, the kinds of topics that they don't teach us in school. NPR correspondent Chris Arnold hosts Life Kit's episodes on money, and he joins us today from Boston. Welcome to our show, Chris. Thanks, Lucy. It's good to be here. So uh, I wanted to start off, uh, again, we talked a little bit about behavioral economics uh, earlier with Marielle, but that you really uh, dive into that for uh, one of the episodes in your series, looking at uh, humans' biological history and why we're so bad at saving. Let's take a listen. We are going to start in caveman times. It's kind of exciting, but it's also kind of scary because there's wolves and saber-toothed tigers and they're creeping up behind you all the time. It's like, whoa. Now, is this the best time to be thinking about saving and your 401k retirement account and stuff like that? I mean, no, of course not. Cavemen don't think about that stuff. You need to survive the day and eat food and don't get eaten yourself. And okay, we're being stupid and corny here, but this is in fact a good lesson about saving money. Because the point is that we are hardwired to focus on the present and immediate gratification. And this is like the opposite of what your brain has to do to focus on saving money. I really love that clip, Chris. So we don't like to wait. We don't like to think about the future. So how do we get around uh, what's rooted inside us uh, to be better savers? Right, right. And, you know, and we're trying to make these sort of engaging and fun. It's like, you know, the idea of sitting down and learning about personal finance might be dull, but we're, we're trying to do it in ways that you learn how your brain works and human psychology and stuff that's like really rooted in science and, and, uh, and making it fun at the same time. So there's a lot of ways to work around it, but sort of the, the holy grail and, and the, if you're going to do one thing to get better at saving money, it's super simple. It's make it automatic. And, you know, if, if, if your employer offers a 401k, for example, and you can sign up for that. And then every paycheck automatically money is coming out uh, and, you know, getting automatically sent to an investment account that hopefully is set up the right way. You know, over time, you don't even see that money. It's invisible to you. You don't have to remember, you know, like we said in the podcast, like, oh, 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 it's Tuesday. So, right, Lucy, that's the day that I've got to remember to write a check to myself for some money to save. I mean, we're just bad at that, right? It's Tuesday. You're going to be thinking about the dishes, getting the kids to school if you have them, or getting your homework done if you're a student or whatever the case may be. You are not thinking about, you know, squirreling away money in some difficult way or just even as simple as writing a check. So the thing to do is in whatever way you do this, make it automatic so you don't have to do anything and the saving just happens by itself. 
Uh, what about uh, people who, you know, depending on the banks that are in their town, uh, trying to find the best institution to even open up a checking account? Sometimes there's those minimums, and maybe people don't have a lot of money where they worry that they're going to have to think about overdraft protection. I mean, what, what tips do you have for them, Chris? Well, I think we can talk, you know, we'll break this down maybe over, over the course of our conversation. But uh, the simple answer is, yeah, look, you want to find a place where you're not paying any fees at all for any sort of checking account. I, I like, And there are banks, credit unions um, it, where you can open a free checking account. You don't have to have a minimum amount in there. It'd be, it's absolutely free to get money from your employer sent into your main checking account. And then you could have another account set up for sort of emergency stuff. And, you know, you could be sending money to a financial institution like the big nonprofit Vanguard and, and do a, a you know target date fund, which is just, they here's how old I am, you know, take care of me. And, and they'll very simply set up a smart investment mix. I mean, there are things you can do that, that are almost free mm-hmm. to manage all this where you, I mean, you're absolutely right. You do not want to be paying fees or that really cuts into your into your savings. I was thinking about uh, budgeting too, because we all have uh, you know consistent uh, uh, withdrawals that are coming out. Whether it's uh, paying for daycare, uh, definitely gas during the week, obviously rent, uh, groceries, and so when we think about our paychecks uh, that we're getting, uh, Chris, I mean, how much should we be trying to save percentage wise? Well, there's a rule of thumb that we talk about, too, that is kind of age-old wisdom, but it's also really good, which is the 50-30-20 rule. And what that means is 50% of your income should be going to just your fixed costs, like you know your your car payment, you got to get to work, your rents or your mortgage, you, know, you got to have a house. Um, 30%, the 30 number, is kind of discretionary, like, oh, I want to go out to eat or I want to you know, pay for my kids' sports or I want to go on vacation. Um, and then 20%, this sounds like a big number, we can talk about ways to get there, 20% should be for saving. And, and you know, if you've accumulated some debt, some of that 20% might be to pay off the debt. But you know, you, people really need to be saving these days like 10 to 12% of their income um, for retirement someday. And then you want other types of savings accounts set up, and, and we can talk about that. But th- that's sort of the the general architecture of it. And, you know, individual circumstances might be different. If you live in Manhattan, you know, your housing costs are going to be a little higher. If, if uh, you know, you're paying off massive amounts of student loans, you might want to try to save more so you can, you know, but, but that's sort of a, a baseline to start at and go from there. Uh, You're hearing NPR correspondent Chris Arnold, uh, who covers personal finance and consumer protection. He's also hosting a series of podcasts for NPR's Life Kit that focuses in on uh, money uh, issues and questions and how to become a better saver. You can join our conversation. Are you someone, uh, like Chris suggested, that has made it an automatic thing every month to put a little bit away into your savings? You can join us, 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at where we live. So, Chris, I wanted to hear more about some of the uh, reporting you did on uh, the importance of making that automatic uh, transfer every month. What's some of the evidence? What are some programs out there that are examples of how this is working well for people? Well, you know, we tend to think we can't save as much money as we actually can is what the research shows. I mean, so there's tons of people who don't save anything in in a 401k plan or any kind of retirement plan. I mean, we have this retirement savings crisis in America, really, and it's not that's not over dramatizing. But what they found is if if a company automatically enrolls its workers into 
a retirement plan, like a 401k or a 403b, 80 to 90% of the people kind of across the income scale stick with it, you know? So as as long as it's done for you and the default is like, oh, I guess I'm saving money and it's coming out of your paycheck and you don't even see it. I mean, it's basically the same thing as the withholding we were talking about with the taxes, right? I mean, you know, if, you know, we're, I'm, I'm a, just kind of a smart monkey here, evolutionary, evolution-wise. And it's like, oh, there's my paycheck. It's in my checking account. And I guess this is the money I have to spend this month. If before I even see that, there's a bunch of money coming out to go to the government and a bunch of money coming out to go to savings, like that's really effective. And 80 to 90% of people who, many of whom might have said, oh, no, no, I couldn't possibly save anything. They save the money. You mentioned in this country, uh, the retirement crisis, it's a real thing. You profiled or talked with someone in the UK about a mandatory retirement account. Tell us a little bit how that works. Yeah, this is a very cool thing. I mean, you know, sometimes you think we might learn something from our our, uh, our, our country across the Atlantic. So so what what the government in the UK did is they said, look, there's evidence that shows from behavioral economics and, and, and these studies I was just talking about that, that if you auto-enroll people... They'll save tons of money and be better off down the road. And when they go to retire, they can have a nice, you know, time and not be like, you know, having to work three jobs when they're 75 or 80 years old. And so um, what they did is they said uh, they started with a small amount, 2%. And we'll talk about this as a strategy that you can use as you start to save. So they, I mean, everybody in the country and every employer from, you know, McDonald's to banks, you know, are required to have an automatic savings program where all the workers got enrolled. And, and, you know, you could be making minimum wage packing vegetables. You get put into this plan, right? And what they found, well, we, we talked to Charlotte Clark. And um, why don't we let her, uh, I think you've got some tape there. We can let her explain how, how it's going. So it's been much more successful than we thought. I, so over 90% of people stick with it. 90% of people hang in there and keep saving because it's automatic. And we didn't think if you did it across the whole of the population, you'd end up with that sort of number. My view is defaults are really powerful. That is a really big number. Nine out of 10 people are sticking with it, Chris. Yeah. And, you know, and what she said at the end there, you know, defaults are really powerful. I mean, they just are. And, and and so you want to get your financial life set up in a way where the default is you're doing all the right stuff. You know, if you try to leave it up to yourself to, like, juggle all the craziness of life and then think, oh, yeah, this weekend, maybe I'll figure out my financial life. It, it You know, that just doesn't work as well as getting it set up as the default. I was thinking back to uh, some of the 403Bs uh, that uh, people may have, or even depending on if it's a 401k, where employers actually will match uh, depending on what your contribution is. It's almost like free money. Do people take advantage of that in this country, Chris? Uh, not enough people, but, um, you know, yeah, I mean, that, that's we'll talk about that, I think, uh, in a little bit. We're going to talk about um, how to prioritize debts. And, I mean, if, if your employer is giving you a 100% match, on the money that you invest. I mean, that's just free money. You just got to find a way to take advantage of that. It's like, oh, I'm going to put $100 or $1,000 into this account, and I'm immediately going to get 100% return. I'm going to get $1,000 from my employer free money. You know, no matter what else is going on, you just got to find a way to make that work. 
Chris Arnold is with us again. He's hosting the personal finance episodes of this uh, NPR podcast called Life Kit. You can join us, too, if you have questions about uh, personal finance, uh, if you're having trouble saving, or if you found a way to really make it work depending on uh, your budget. The number 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. So uh, you mentioned the strategy of starting small, Chris, uh, starting with 2% uh, to uh, put into savings. And then where should it grow from from there? Right. So uh, the way that experts that we spoke to for the podcast think about this, and these are like Bridget Madrian. She's an economist who was at Harvard for a long time. Um, She studied policy issues around retirement savings. It should be 20 percent of of your money should be going into savings. And that, of course, would be very hard to start tomorrow if you're not there now. So an effective strategy is you start with like two or three percent and then each year you bump it up by another 2 or 3%. So like inflation goes up, you get a little bit of a raise or you you, you get a promotion at work. And, you know, it's, it's at those times, you know, that's happening in the background. You know, if over the course of five years, you're bumping up 2 or 3%, another 2 or 3%, another 2 or 3%, pretty quickly, you can get to a place where you're saving a lot of money. And the goal is maybe 10 or 12% should be for your retirement account and then the rest, we can talk about the various other things, but, you know, saving up for the down payment on a house or some of that will be to pay off student loan debt or, or credit card debt that you accumulated before you got your financial financial house in order. Um, and we can talk more about that in a minute. But that, that's the that's the basic way that that, that works. I was thinking about uh, when uh, we graduate from college, and some of us may have a lot of student debt. Um, so, for young people, you know, how feasible is this, Chris? Uh, when we're thinking about trying to even get that first full-time job? I mean, look, you, you you have to sort of meet yourself where you're at, right? And, and I think, you know, one way to think about um, how to prioritize these things. Um, I might be jumping ahead a little bit, but is just go go by the numbers, right? I mean, I mean, if you're sitting on fifty thousand dollars of student loan debt that's at six or seven percent interest, you're not going to pay that off this year if you just get out of college and you're not making much money. But if your employer is offering that hundred percent return, you know that that hundred percent return is the biggest interest number. So you know you got to take advantage of that first. If you've got um, credit card debt that you're being charged 22% interest or something outrageous. You know, I mean, the interest rates are very high. You got to be going after that. The student loans, well, okay, they're at 7%. I mean, that that could ride for, I mean, you want to be paying them down, you know, making your, your monthly payments. But as far as like going hyper aggressive to get rid of that debt, you know, that can probably wait till you get rid of the credit card debt. And you just follow the numbers to go after what makes sense. Now, there are different approaches Two, we can talk about, we did this in a how to get out of debt episode, but to me, like as a place to start thinking about this, like that's a good way if you're just getting out of school, like you asked to figure out like, all right, what do I do? You know, what, what should I be prioritizing? I was thinking back to one of the episodes where you talked to economists, uh, I think your name's Anna Maria Lusardi, about buffer accounts. And you talk about this as almost as an, using the analogy of a shock absorber. Talk a little bit more about that, Chris. Yeah. So, okay. This is, this is a cool concept. Um, you know, with a lot of this stuff, it's better if you use metaphors because then people can understand it better. But, um, all right. So if you drive a car, I mean, I work in public radio. So when I first got hired, I I drove a car with probably like no shocks left at all. Right. And when you drive a car like that, 
it's like rattling down the road. It's like rattling the fillings out of your teeth. And it's it's just, you know, it, it's it's bad for the car. It's bad for you. It's crazy to drive a car like that. It breaks other things on the car. You know, most people listening to this are not driving around in cars with ac- absolutely no shock absorbers. But a lot of us set up our financial lives in a way where we don't have any shock absorbers. So, uh, and the types of shocks we're talking about is like, oh, geez, uh, my car broke or I got a big dental bill and I can't pay for it. You know, uh, you know, you need that a buffer account set up with a thousand bucks, 2000 bucks, whatever it is. So that, oh, geez, it was a death in my extended family. I got to fly to California. You have the money because otherwise these shocks always come, you know, it's just, there are always bumps in the road. And if you don't have the money saved up to deal with it, that can start you down a bad path where you're using the wrong thing for your shock absorber, like like a credit card. That can be the worst. I'm thinking back when you've got the big, uh, the maybe you've paid off your car, but you've got uh, regular maintenance, and all of a sudden uh, your transmission goes. <laughs> uh, that's a big bump. Right. Exactly. Uh, again, uh, Chris Arnold is with us. Uh, he's hosting uh, the personal finance episodes for NPR's new podcast, Life Kit. You can join us too, 860-275-7266. Are there approaches that have worked for you or maybe you need a little more help? Again, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Stephen's calling from Chester. Uh, Stephen, what's working for you? Oh, hi. Um, I, I, there's a term called FIRE, which is Financial independence, retire early. Uh, and I just wanted to, to, to mention how important it is to take into account when you save that compounding interest is a powerful thing so that when you uh, need to retire, as I have, and I'm 55, uh, that I'm able to retire early because I can live off the interest that I have cr- created um, alone and still save. Well, thank you, Stephen. Thanks for sharing that acronym, FIRE, Financial Independence, Retire Early. Is that something, uh, Chris, that you've come across? Well, I'm I'm aware of it. And um, and yeah, I mean, congratulations also for for being able to retire at 55. We we haven't gone we haven't done the FIRE episode yet because you often have to make enough income to to, you know, to to get there that we're trying to kind of speak to the every man and woman first and, and then go there. But 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 the idea of the power of compound interest is huge. And, and, and okay, I'm going to throw some math at people, but but hang in there. It's not too crazy. Um, the rule of 72, I was reporting like 20 years ago. I was just starting out. I was in a classroom where this guy in New York was explaining to sort of lower income kids, like this is the power of compound interest. And he talked about the rule of 72 and it's always stuck in my head. And the way it works is you take uh, 72 and you divide it by the interest rates and you get the number of years it takes your money to double. All right. If and and that's confusing. You don't have to do the math. But what it means is if you are getting about a seven percent return, which is about what the stock market does over time, your money doubles every 10 years once you invest it. So what that means is if you are in your 20s, you got your first job, you got an employer match, and you can start socking away money and like getting a roommate and living cheap. And if by the time you're say 35, you got $100,000 saved up, which is totally doable for a lot of people. It might sound like a lot of money, but you know, with the employer match, you got to save half that. Um, you do it over time. Then by the time you're 45, it's going to double to 200000 55, 400000 65. You got 800000 75 years old, you got $1.6 million. You started out with hundred grand. This is why people say you have to start saving when you're young. I mean, 
time, you might not have a lot of money, but you've got a lot of time and it's incredibly powerful. You, you really want to harness that. Again, you can join us, 860-275-7266, as we talk about uh, ways to become better savers, thinking about buffer accounts, as NPR correspondent Chris Arnold uh, has mentioned. Uh, we were also curious about programs here in Connecticut that are helping people save, uh, even if they're on uh, fixed income or tight budgets. So joining us by phone is Donna Taglianetti. She's a financial stability consultant who works with Connecticut United Ways. Uh, Donna, welcome to our show. Thank you. So what about when we think about uh, savings in Connecticut, you and I are familiar. We think often that Connecticut is an expensive state. Uh, People have trouble just trying to make uh, ends meet depending on their income. So uh, what what have you found out about where people, how many people are are able to save and what income levels are we talking about? Well, the the Connecticut United Ways a couple of years ago started doing this uh, report called the Connecticut ALICE report, and ALICE stands for Acid Limited Income Constrained but Employed. And what we found was that 40% of households in Connecticut are working hard, but they have difficulty meeting their basic necessities, housing, food, child care, which is a big expense, health care, transportation. And that includes 10% of the population that falls below the federal poverty line. But that's 30% who are above the federal poverty line and still struggle to meet their monthly expenses. Um, We found that that's consistent across the state. It's certainly higher percentages in urban areas, but 20% of all, uh, 75% of towns in Connecticut have 20% of their population who falls into this Alice category. Um, So we also found that 37% of Connecticut residents did not save any money for emergencies last year. So something as small as a car repair or a couple of weeks illness can become a major crisis and really sort of snowball into a bigger and bigger issue for families. Uh, when we were thinking about doing this show, uh, producer Carmen Baskoff heard about how the United Way actually is is working on programs uh, to connect people, even when they fall in this Alice uh, range, to develop emergency savings. What can you tell us? Yes, uh, we're really excited. We are just launching a a new program in Connecticut called Alice Saves, which combines some very um, proven, effective programs that have been successful in other states. Uh, We're bringing them to Connecticut. So one is called Saver Life, and Saver Life is a program that rewards people for saving. Uh, It allows uh, people to, it's really sort of a way to kickstart your savings. It's really geared towards those people who haven't been saving any money. So for every $20 that you save, for for a six-month period of time, if you save $20 a month, we reward you with $10. So that's a a very simple way to start saving. We did a pilot of that program in Connecticut a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago, and uh, we had 320 savers, and they saved $260,000. So it's been a very effective program. We're combining that this time with another program called Trusted Advisor, which is a free financial counseling program that takes place either by telephone or Skype. It's it's a convenient program. It allows people who are working maybe multiple jobs to find a time, because it's not constricted to just working hours, but to find a time where they can talk to a financial counselor, a real person who can help them set up, look at their financial situation, 
set up some financial goals, and then help them work towards those financial goals. Uh, you mentioned uh, this is a non a free nonprofit advisor. So uh, the benefit is uh, these are these advisors aren't making commission necessarily if they uh, you know suggest a certain product that you use. Uh, they probably won't suggest a certain product. Actually, it's really more about empowering clients to make their own decisions and make good decisions. So we're about trying to give people the tools that they need to make good decisions. We may at some point say, you know, you need some really specific advice and here are the kinds of people that you might look for. But generally, we're really coaching people to really take a look at their financial situation and start taking those small steps that will really get them on the path towards a a more stable financial future. So for our listeners who are interested in the Saver Life program, where can they go to learn more? And then is how long will this program be running? Uh, well, we're hoping to run it for a long time. It's uh, You can go to ctalicesaves.org, and you can sign up for the program there, and you'll get information. Uh, you'll, you'll get a lot of information. You'll get nudges about your savings. You'll get some hints about how to save uh, that are, are prepared by a, a, a professional financial advisor. You'll, um, you'll get opportunities to learn about other United Way programs, like, you know, many United Ways support free tax preparation programs. So you'll hear about other services that are available to you that might help you financially. Donna Taglianetti, again, is financial stability consultant working with Connecticut United Ways. We'll also link uh, at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live to the information that Donna was mentioning about these programs. Donna, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So uh, one thing we often hear is it's important to invest, uh, but what about all that debt that we might be carrying? Uh, NPR, Chris Chris Arnold, again, has been hosting uh, these podcasts based on looking at personal finance for NPR called NPR's Life Kit. And we're going to talk more about that. Uh, Where should people invest and how should they tackle that debt that they're carrying first? You can join us, too. The number 860-275-7266 or find Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking today about personal finance and hopefully making it seem less like a chore. We've been talking with Chris Arnold, an NPR correspondent who hosts the personal finance episodes for uh, NPR's Life Kit podcast. And he certainly uh, makes it fun uh, as you listen uh, to these uh, different episodes in the series. You can join us with your question, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Arvine is calling from Orange and Arvind, what's your question? Hi, so I'm a recent college graduate. I'm 21 years old, and I have my first job uh, working in Connecticut, uh, living at home, so I'm saving some money. Uh, my question is, where do I invest? So there's just so many different options, I feel like. I'm not really an expert in the stock market. Um, I don't know if I should directly invest my money in the stock market, if I should put it in the 401k, if I should just start saving by myself, just putting it in my bank account. So that's kind of my question. Where where do I put this money that I'm starting to save? Arvind, great question, and it's a good segue uh, to uh, what we wanted to tackle in this segment, Chris. Uh, before we think about investing, we've got to tackle the debt first. So how about we start there? Yeah, and, and we've talked a little bit about that already, which is like, you know, in terms of debt versus saving and investing, 
Like go by the numbers. If you're getting a hundred percent employer match, that's free money. Take that first. If you got credit cards that are at twenty two percent, um, pay those off. Target that next. If you got student loans that are seven percent, okay, then you can move move down the list, going after the stuff that's hurting you the most. There are other approaches we we can talk about um, in a minute. But um, two things I want to answer uh, Arvin's question about you know how to invest in, and um. You know, combined with what I just said, we talked with David Swenson, who is sort of a world famous, you know, probably one of the greatest investors on planet Earth, and he manages Yale University's uh, endowment. And we went to him and said, "Okay, so how should people wondering how to start investing for retirement in the future, you know, what what should they do? And to make it very simple and actionable for people, he said, look, you know, one thing you can do is there's a incredibly robust uh, and dependable not-for-profit financial institution out there called Vanguard. And David has his own mix. You can check out on our on our podcast of what types of investments. Or you could just do a target date fund. You're like, I'm out of college. I'm 25. You know, it's very low fee. And it's a very simple way to get started. Because I think the complexity is what derails a lot of people um, thinking like, oh, you know, this is really complicated. It doesn't have to be. And I think one other thing we should talk about, too, before we get into some more of the strategies is I think for a lot of people, they just feel like, oh, I can't possibly get out of debt. I've got these student loans and these credit cards, and I'm not making that much money yet. And we spoke to, I think you've got some tape there of Michelle Singletary, who is a personal finance writer and a columnist with Washington Post. She's great. And um, so we asked her about this. Look, we heard from tons of listeners who are like, it's just so hard. I'm not making much money yet. I'm young. Um Here's what she had to say about that. You know, people are like, well, you don't know. You don't understand. Let me tell you something. I completely understand. I was abandoned by my parents and went to live with my grandmother. Before my grandmother took us in, I knew hunger. And I don't mean that there wasn't choices in the refrigerator. I mean there was nothing in the refrigerator. So I understand poverty at a level that some experts don't, right? You know, my grandmother made um, like $13,000 the most in her life. So she couldn't give me money to help. So I totally get that there's not a whole lot to stretch. I know what it's like, but I also know that you can't overspend and spend what you don't have. So if you're a young adult starting out, that means that you got to make different decisions. So Chris, tell us about some of the steps that listeners can take. What are some different strategies to help uh, pay down debt? Uh, well, one is to make some big changes. If, if you've got a lot of debt and you're not making much money, you know, like Michelle says in the podcast, maybe you got to have some roommates, you know, and and like the caller was saying, uh, you know, you, you, you can live with your parents, you know, you, you just you have to cut your expenses way back. And um, then there's different approaches. One, this what I was referring to before you start with the highest interest rate and go down. That's called the avalanche method. There's also something that works for people called the snowball method, where you start with the smallest debt first, regardless of the interest rate, and say, okay, I owe 400 bucks on this credit card. I'm just going to pay it off. And behavioral research shows that that getting little wins like that motivates us and makes us feel more powerful and want to go after the next debt. And so that can be another approach doing it that way. Um you know, ultimately, budgeting is going to be a part of this. You know, uh, the, you're just going to have to sit down and make a budget. It doesn't have to be super complicated. You know, it could be that 50, 30, 20 thing we talked about. Um, people also put money in envelopes. That's another thing. You go to cash, stop using the credit cards. Don't cancel the credit card accounts because that can hurt your credit score. But just 
it's way too easy to spend money with plastic. So if you decide I'm just going to spend 100 bucks on groceries this week or whatever it is, you put the cash in the envelope, write groceries on it, and when the money's gone from there, um, that's it. You stop spending. Those are all of these are tricks that are like rooted in behavioral psychology and stuff that that like we you don't want to go past that envelope and 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 those sorts of things work there's probably too much to sort of unload here quickly but again if you go to npr.org slash life kit the saving and investing one and there's another episode another guide on, on getting out of debt we just have tons of information about about all this stuff i was thinking the envelope strategy makes sense but also does it take a lot of willpower so maybe you put the 100 dollars aside for groceries uh, but uh, you know you have the munchies one night and you realize well i spent all the money in the envelope can i just use my debit card chris i mean well well we talked to um the 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 founder of ynab uh, you need a budget which is like you know, people, this is online software that you can use for budgeting that has like this kind of cult following and they do videos all the time. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's sort of super popular. And his his thing was like, look, you are going to screw up your budget and that's OK. You know, don't. Yeah. You blow the money on pizza. You know, it's, it, it's a process, you know, um, and you want to be kind to yourself as you learn to change your habits. Uh, you know, one one approach that I really love that a listener told us about and Michelle Singletary, who we mentioned, also wrote a book about this is what's called a spending fast. And what I love about this is like a simplicity to it where you just say, all right, whether it's a month or two months or three months, whatever it's going to be, I'm going to spend as little money as possible. And I'm going to put gas in the car to go to work. I'm going to pay my rent, but I'm not buying any new clothes. I'm not going out to eat. I am making my own coffee. And you just strip everything out that's not you know, completely essential. And the process of doing that, like, and then what you learn is, and we talked to listeners about this, that then you learn what you really miss the most and what you just feel like you can't live without. So, okay, maybe getting that cup of coffee in the morning, you chat with the people at the cafe. It's just so nice. It's worth the two bucks or three bucks. Um, you put that back in the budget. But other stuff like bringing your lunch to work, well, that was easy. I can do that. And mm-hmm. And, you know, and then and then you develop habits that can stick with you going forward. And you can also save a ton of money. We talked to people who were able to pay off a lot of debt by doing this spending fast thing for like longer amounts of time. And and that that was pretty cool. And it's sort of like a intense sprint to really make a lot of headway fast. Uh, you talked to, you profiled uh, one woman who had $40,000 in debt from a wedding and she did this spending fast and she actually saw results pretty fast. Yeah, I, I think it was like twenty grand of it. She paid off in like a year or something like that, or, or uh, and and uh, and she made it was like six or seven grand. She paid off just in a few months. So, doing sort of the more intense spending fast thing. Um, and yeah, and I, I think I think that to me just sounded like yeah. I mean, I think you have to be sort of in a moment of crisis, or it really has to hit you. But another takeaway for us was you know harness the angst. Like like we talked to one woman who was like in labor at the hospital. You're having a baby and her husband's like eating a burrito and not being terribly helpful. And and she's just like freaking out. It's our third kid. How are we going to pay for this? And she's like, tells her husband, like, put down the burrito and and like buy this budget app, you know, and it's like that was the moment for her when it was like, we got to get our financial house in order, you know. Um, but, you know, if you're at a moment in your life where you're just sort of freaking out, like, I really want to figure this out, like use that to to do something big, like like a spending faster, to get a roommate or, you know, to make some big changes that can can uh, can help. 
Uh, Chris, we only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, and again, we're going to be tweeting out links to these episodes you have hosted for NPR's Life Kit. Um, they can look at where we live or at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, but one of the bumps that can happen for people is medical debt. Quickly, can you tell us uh, if someone uh, um, has a, a big medical bill to pay, what are some smart ways to try to tackle that? Sure. And listen to the episode because there's way more than I can talk about. But uh, the number one takeaway is if you get stuck with a bill and it's a legitimate bill and, and you challenge it and they say, no, you really owe it. Insurance not paying. Um, you can get that bill often cut in half or forgiven completely. Nonprofit hospitals are required under the ACA, under Obamacare, to have uh, financial assistance programs. If you don't make much money, you're likely to qualify uh, also, if they're charging, we talked to a guy, he had a $100,000 bill for heart surgery that his insurance refused to pay. He said, look, uh, he did his homework. He looked it up. He said, well, look, Medicare only pays $22,000 or something for this same procedure. The hospital sued him. It went to court. He kept in there swinging the bat saying, like, why am I the only guy to pay $100,000? And in the end, a mediator working with a mediator in the hospital, they let him pay the twenty two or twenty five grand over five years. He could afford the bill. But the real is push back, ask for help. You know, don't just sit there and be like, oh, gosh, I, I'm in trouble, you know, because there are especially with medical debt. There are all kinds of ways to get the bill reduced, to get help um, and figure a way out. I got to ask, Chris, you've been covering uh, financial issues, businesses for many years. Some of these things that uh, you've been talking about in your podcast, do you use them yourself? Uh, yeah. No, actually, I mean, some of the stuff I've done myself, like like um, I've always been really good at the big stuff in my mind, like, you know, saving for retirement and investing it in a smart way. And, you know, I interviewed guys like David Swenson, who's this genius investor, you know, 15 years ago. And, and I did exactly what he said, you know, so like like there I'm good. But it's the more like everyday budgeting stuff. I haven't been as good. So I'm actually learning as I as I go into this, too, like from talking with folks like Michelle Singletary and everybody else and um you know, having different accounts set up and being more intentional about that stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's fascinating and, 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 and people feel better about themselves when they figure this out. So, you know, try it, check it out, and hopefully you get to a better place. Well, uh, Chris Arnold, again, it's been fun. We hope that we've uh, led people to this new uh, podcast again, Life Kits, uh, Personal Finance, and other topics. So the, the finance ones hosted by NPR's Chris Arnold, who joined us today here on Where We Live. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Lucy. It was fun. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to Seth Blair on the phones. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>